Hey folks, Randy Newberg here with another episode of Hunt Talk Radio. And today I have a great guest with me. Um, he works for a great company that we've product we've been using for quite a while, uh, Orion Coolers. Uh, I've been abusing them, doing everything I can to try and break one. And I'm going on a year now and in spite of all I've done, I've not been able to break one. And they've continue to hold up in everything we do. Um, but before I get to Damon, um, I'm going to quickly talk about the other two partners in our podcast, uh, Onyx Maps. Uh, those of you who know how I hunt and where I hunt, you know the understanding the public-private interface uh, of, of Western hunting lands is extremely important. And the Onyx Maps is that system I've been using for many years. It allows me to draw more tags because I'm comfortable hunting in these areas with a lot of private land. And it uh, helps me hunt with confidence, as they say, hunt confident and hunt smarter. Uh, go to onyxmaps.com, and they have a new app out called the Hunt 3.0. Uh, extremely exciting piece, and they have so many things coming out this summer that I know if you go there, uh, one, you're going to find it worth your time. You're going to find it to be a product that is very, very helpful to improving your hunting success. And it's going to give you some insight into places that maybe you hadn't thought about hunting before. And then the other sponsor we have, you've heard me talk about, uh, for, for my TV show, I have to get 10 to 12 tags a year to produce a, a TV series. And that requires a lot of research. And the one place where most of that research is accumulated in one place, all of that data, all those resources, is a company called GoHunt.com. They have a service called The Insider. And if you subscribe to their insider service, you are going to have libraries and libraries of Western application, drawing odds, unit research, anything you can think of in most of the Western states, you're going to find uh, by, by going to the insider. Uh, the insider at gohunt.com has a special that they're running, a, a promo code for us and our listeners. So if you enter the promo code HUNTTALK, H-U-N-T-T-A-L-K, when you sign up for Insider, you're going to get a free Gerber Vital Scalpel Blade Knife, the knife that we use when we're out in the field. And uh, it's uh, the, the word of, of uh, a lot of what people say today is, oh, I need a hunting consultant or I, I've hired a hunting consultant. Well, be your own hunting consultant. Go and subscribe to the Insider. Use the promo code HUNTTALK. And I can guarantee you that you're going to draw more tags and you're going to draw better tags. And when you draw those tags, you're probably going to have more success. So anyhow, with that, I'm going to get back to our guest from Orion Coolers, Damon Bungard. Damon, thanks for being here. Thanks a lot for having me, Randy. Appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, Damon and I are at, and we're in Missoula, Montana today. Uh, I don't know why we're inside on such a beautiful... It is gorgeous here. <laughs> Montana in the spring. You got to take them and you can get it. And right now, it's, it's pretty good out there. It is beautiful. But we're at the Backcountry Hunters and Angler uh, an Annual Rendezvous. And Damon and I have been going back and forth talking. We bumped into each other a couple times last year. And uh, I, I got to looking at the Orion Coolers and... Damon is in charge of everything from start to finish at Orion Coolers, and I'm going to have him tell the story of how the best kayak company in the world, Jackson Kayak, somehow becomes committed to being the best cooler company in the world. How All do, right. How does that work, Damon? So, well, basically, uh, yeah, we, you know, people that know Orion Coolers know that 
we are also Jackson Kayak. So Jackson Kayak makes the highest performing whitewater kayaks and kayak fishing products in the world. Basically, we make stuff that has to perform in the harshest conditions in the world. Sometimes, you know, life critical conditions. You know, if you're in the middle of a class five canyon somewhere, it's, you can't really tolerate a, you know, a boat break in and you need things to perform. <laughs> How do you perform when you want them to perform? Right. A, a warranty so, does you no good. Warranty does point. you no good. <laughs> so when, um, when it came to, you know, making a premium cooler, you know, make it, we, we mold and manufacture everything at our, at our factory in Tennessee. And when it comes to seeing, you know, these premium rotomolded coolers coming up on the market, it's kind of obvious. Well, you can look at that, you know, I can look at that as an endorsement and say, well, I would do this, 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 and this. Yeah. So the decision was pretty easy. Well, then let's just do that. Let's make that happen. So we decided, <laughs> um, we decided to go to launch our own brand of coolers and call it Orion Coolers, and kind of took you know took that holistic look at it and said, okay, if I was just had this box, obviously it has to keep things cool. That's kind of rule number one. But then, why is that it? Why can't it do this? And why can't it do this? And why can't it do this also? Um, and so. One of the wonderful things about our fishing kayaks and one of the comments you always hear is, wow, you guys thought of everything. And so now we're seeing that same thing come across in Orion and you see a lot of these cool innovations and unique features. Some of them are in our fishing kayaks, like the track system lets you mount all the RAM accessories or speakers or phone holders or a tray side or, or all these things. That came from our fishing kayaks, you know, the versatility of being able to customize a single kayak to all these different applications. Well, now the same thing is with a cooler, uh, yeah. putting bottle opener corners on. That's just an obvious thing. What do you have? <laughs> what happens when you every party you're at, you open a cooler and you pull out a beer or whatever you have a cap on who stands around hey who's got the opener well right. that problem is solved <laughs> four times over because every corner <laughs> every corner has a bottle opener okay but i gotta stop you there because the other day or yesterday it was at your booth here some guy said well why did you go through the headache of putting a bottle opener on all four corners right. and and i listened to the answer you gave and it, it's uh, i want I kind of want you to answer it here. Yeah, so so our corners, you know, they're 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 a nice aluminum. They're, they're, they're they act as a tie-down point, as a bumper, and as a bottle opener, all in one. And you know that requires a tooling investment from a manufacturing standpoint to have this aluminum corner made. And you know, we, we, yeah, cooling costs money; it's an investment. And the comment was, well, why do we need four? corners when we can just have a bottle opener on one and i'm like well then why would i pay extra tooling to have a non-bottle opener corner made <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of obvious well if you're gonna have to invest in one you might as well put it on all four corners because it's gonna cost you the same once, the, once you invest <laughs> when you answered that question I, I when he asked you the question my mind's like yeah why is that and then when you gave the answer i'm like duh randy that's that's so obvious <laughs> right. but when you guys when about making coolers, um, you have traveled extensively, hunting, fishing. I mean, yeah. you you being the product guy, the marketing guy, the the a lot of things guy at Orion Coolers. Your experience in the field that for you to be from the you and you standpoint to the design and the I guess engineering, if you want to call it that. It's a lot of times you don't get that in a manufacturing process. You have one guy out testing. He tells an engineer who tells um, operations right. who that's completely different with you guys. It is, it is a little different. Obviously, you know, we have Jackson Kayak is full of very passionate people who use the products. You know, Eric Jackson's a four-time whitewater freestyle world champion. His son's a world champion. His daughter's a world champion. His son-in-law's. So, like, Jackson Kayak 
air, the Jackson family is by far the first family of whitewater kayaking. Yeah. Then we started making fishing kayaks. You know, we have experts, myself, we have Drew Gregory, we have Jim Sammons, um, all these fishing kayak experts. And we have a team of a, across the country in the world of over 100 of, you know, expert kayak fishermen giving us constant user feedback. So, yeah, we take feedback from customers, we take feedback from these team members. Um, but then as a user myself, I can come in and say, you know, I need to do this. I need to do this. I don't tolerate, I don't tolerate gear failure at all. <laughs> so, and that's something that, you know, I used to do a lot of rock climbing and ice climbing and that kind of stuff. You, you can't like that. There's, there's no, there's no room for, right. for gear failure and gear, I just don't accept it. And it's the one thing that just drives me up a wall. So when it comes to you know, our products, um, and being a user, you know, I can relate and say, you know, cause a lot of our people on the, on Jackson side, they're not hunters right. or they're not, um, you know, they're not, a lot of them do fish, but they may not travel the world fishing or using the same application. So, but I can definitely, and I've been on week long floats, float hunts. I've been, you know, dropped in by plane and having to live somewhere for a long time. You know, I've been around bears. I've been, you know, it's all, it's all there. Yeah. So I know what I need, uh, that product to do. And then I just, you know, when it comes, I have an engineering background. I worked a lot in the defense industry before I came to the outdoor industry. Um, and I was used to developing performance specifications for products that our guys in the field had to use. So it was the same, I approached it the same way. I, I need a cooler to do all these 10 things, you know, get with yeah. a designer. How are we going to accomplish all these 10 things? Do them all and execute a product. Okay. So, well, the cycle's the same. Uh, when you sent me the first batch of coolers, and, and those of you listening know that Randy is pretty much, I don't know if the right word's an equipment snob, but I'm not going to use something just because someone asked me to or because someone says, oh, I'll pay you some money. So Damon and I got to talk, and he was in Bozeman last summer at, weren't you at Sims? When I was bought? visiting my friends at Sims. I was in the parking lot at Sims getting back in my Winnebago with my <laughs> wife on the way to the outdoor <laughs> retailer show, right. and I knew you from the show, and we had talked on the phone. I hadn't met in person, and I was like, Randy, he's like, hey, Damon. <laughs> yeah, and so he's showing me the cooler for the first time, and I'm like, wow, some thought has really went into this. This is, as much as I think people say, oh, coolers are coolers or whatever, I looked at it right away. I'm like, all right. Not only is the color unique, yeah. but the latches, the handles, the, the inside, the tray, the cutting board. I mean, the list went on and on. I'm like, well, they're super well designed. How are they going to hold up? And so you sent me that batch of them. And so I spent last season, and people will see them in the upcoming TV show. They'll see us using them. And... I put them through all kinds of crazy things like, like I do with anything someone sends me. And probably the one thing that I was trying to replicate is I often end up on elk hunts in September that take me to Arizona or New Mexico or some warm place in archery season. And when I go there, I freeze a bunch of milk jugs and I head out, leave Bozeman, Montana. I drive down there. It usually takes me a day or two to get there. And then I hunt. And if I shoot something... I'm way out in the sticks. I mean, I'm out in the Gila. I'm somewhere else. And I got to have a way for this animal to not spoil on my way home. And so when I'm out there, usually, you know, in the daytime, it gets up in the 80s. And then at night, uh, up in the high plains, it gets down in the 40s. Um, and I always keep the cooler closed and I put a blanket over it. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to try something different. When I was in Colorado, I, uh, we're is a November deer hunt. And I brought all my, my frozen ice in, in empty milk jugs. 
And I said, I'm leaving these coolers next to the heater in the hotel room for seven days. And I'm going to see. I mean, none of this warm in the day, cool down at night stuff. This is just like 72 degrees, 24 hours a day for the six nights and almost seven days. And uh, when we're getting ready to leave Colorado, unfortunately, I didn't have a buck to to put in the cooler. (laughs) But uh, I opened them up. And, I mean, those milk jugs were still, I mean, there's very little water. It was mostly still ice. Mm And I'm like, all right, it definitely, it's past all the other tests. It is definitely past the how long will it keep ice test. And so then we took them to Wyoming on a November elk hunt. And we, I hope you don't see these coolers because they're not (laughs) like how you sent them to us. That's their job. (laughs) They're muddy, they're dirty, they're scratched, they're dinged, they're, you know, the top. I think we, uh. We tipped over one of our uh, jet boils on on the mm-hmm. top and didn't really hurt anything, but I can tell which cooler it was that we tipped it over on. Right. <laughs> but I bet. So, um, but they just they held up, and so the the crew with me, uh, the guest hunters, the camera guys, they're all avid outdoors people. Whether it's hunting, fishing, all the above, and every one of them are like, "What cooler is this? What what <laughs> Orion coolers?" I'm like, "Yeah." So now they're all like, "Hey, you think you think those guys will send you some coolers for me?" I'm like, eh, "I don't know, hands off." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it it definitely passed our test. And the reason that I tell the audience that is, a lot of them know that many products I that they see on the show, I use, and I may not be getting paid anything for them. Or there's products I use that I don't get paid much, and some competitor came and offered me a ton of money, but the competitor's not as good. So if, if you see it on our show, you see it in our images, I can guarantee you that it's going to hold up to whatever we put it through. And, and you and I had the deal where I said, Damon, if these don't work, I'm yeah. keeping the boxes and I'm shipping them back to you. And, and we were totally fine with that. Yeah. I, mean, I, don't, I don't tolerate gear failure. I don't expect anybody that, that uses our product to either. Right. I mean, like next month in, in May, I'm going to get dropped off on an island out in Alaska. Southeast Alaska. I'm going to be bear hunting. I'm going to be living out of coolers for a week to the point of gear failure. I need gear that performs and doesn't fail because as we were talking about with the kayak, your warranty, you know, some company's warranty doesn't do me much good <laughs> when, right. when I've got a full episode, I got camera guys, I got production gear, I've got everything we're doing invested in this episode and uh, just, it's not going to work for me if it fails so but uh after you and i met last summer i started following your blog and he people need to understand that if if you wanted a job that probably is one of the coolest jobs i can think of i think damon has it if you read his (laughs) blog it's like does this guy gotta pay them to come to work or what's the deal so uh, all yeah. these places you're going, all this hunting you're doing, all this fishing you're doing, is that product testing? Is it? It's all the above. You know, I'm really fortunate um, to have a lot of flexibility in my job, and I've been really fortunate to have a wonderful team at the factory, you know, um, to from the production side, from the development side. And a lot of what I do is so I'm product manager for Jackson Kayak, brand manager for Orion. 
Um, I wear a lot of hats from development to marketing to sales and everything, and that requires me to and I work with a lot of partners um, that we use and travel a lot, do a lot of shows, uh, very tolerant wife. That's also <laughs> extremely important. Love yeah. you, Ashley. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you can say that three or four times yeah. because yeah. you can never say it too many times. And, um, so a lot of what I do is managing the processes that yield a good product and have these team, this team of support around me to help, me, uh, help us all execute it and do it well. Um, so, yes, what you see is a lot of times, you know, um, for instance, uh, I write for the Winne- Winnebago and Winnebago Life's blog um, and drove a lot of the, lot of the country last year, put 15,000 miles on his RV and Ashley came with me and our dog tripper and yeah. um, did the ventures kind of along the way. And that's when I bumped into you and um, at the Sims factory uh, and, you know, then did the outdoor retailer show and. Um, was in fly fishing in Arkansas, New Mexico, on the way home. Those generated stories for us and for Orvis and other friends and partners in the industry. So you see, uh, whether it's Winnebago Life or Ryan Cooler's blog, Jackson Kayak blog, Orvis News, you might see my stories pop up in all of them because I'm doing all these things and they're all friends of the industry and I'm working with them all. Um, so it's, it, is, it is a really cool kind of place that I've found myself, you know, over the years, uh, where I am now with developing these products that I care about and passionate about and want to see do well and perform well. And, um, you know, it's been Orion, you know, uh, it's only only been around for a little over a year. I mean, we basically debuted an outdoor retailer show a couple of years ago, pre-production units. And right after OR, I took a pre-production, our first size, the 65 up to Alaska on um, a three-week trip uh, guiding my father on a drop hunt in the Brooks Range for caribou. And we got our four bulls and then got all the meat back uh, to Anchorage and then uh, dropped it off with a processor and uh, and then took off on a fishing trip and went in on a, on a drop-in float and did that with a bear tag. And, uh, and then we went and got on, you know, got on a plane doing fishing trips. So that was with a pre-production <laughs> cooler. And that cooler is still in Alaska with uh, Tower Rock Lodge. I left it with friends up there. And um, yeah. so <laughs> that's the original one. Um, and it did its job, you know, it yeah. did its job everywhere. Um, and then now we have, you know, what's uh, six sizes, seven colors, and a lot, a lot of options. And um, so it's been really cool seeing what we've gone. Just, you know, this is, we're just finishing our first full year production. Um, and we have two manufacturing sites in Tennessee now. We have our original factory, and we just moved into a new 300,000 square feet factory just a couple miles down the road. 300,000 square feet. Yeah, we had. Um, <laughs> That's we big. had Yeah, Phillips Lighting had a, had a big ware, big facility there that they had left empty and vacant for a few years, um, and we worked with it with the with the state and everybody else to basically take it over. Um, so we're yeah. trying to you know bring jobs. They are lo- we're pretty rural in Tennessee where we are, and. Um, bring jobs there. So we have all the kayaks now and in one building and the coolers in another and um, freed up a lot of warehouse space. And we were getting kind of space constrained between all of our molds and, you know, ovens, you know, people don't understand roll to molding ovens um, and uh, how big they are. They're basically the size of a bus. You really? Know? So one oven. Yeah. One oven. So a small bus um, and that oven, you know, these molds go in on spindles and, um, if you Google a recent ish- episode of Yak Angler, I do a factory walkthrough showing all of this. Okay. Um, yakangler.com. And, um, and the molds, you know, are basically you could think of them as um, two halves of a bathtub on this big frame. And they get, they get clamped together once the plastic 
pellets or the sand is, is like a sand is kind of poured in um, and then it goes and gets lifted by a crane into this oven and this it spins it on one axis while that oven actually rocks and rolls and that gets the plastic to flow all through it right so you know that takes a lot of space and it takes okay. a, a lot of room to heat that oven up and ramp it up and then so now by having it separated out the kayaks and the coolers you know we've, we've opened up our our a lot of a lot of good things and so a lot of very 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 busy time in tennessee right now yeah so this is just randy the kind of gear junkie yeah interested if someone calls or gets online and goes to oriancoolers.com and i don't know if this is how it works but mm-hmm. i place my order how long does it take to make quote unquote a cooler from when the order comes in to the to oven it, to to yeah. putting the finished hardware and everything on it okay so, you know, yes, if you go to RyanCoolers.com and order one there, um, you're, or you can go to, obviously retailers have them, but if you order right. online, um, it's either immediately in stock and it ships, you know, day, next, same day, next day. Yeah. If it's not, um, it'll take, it's roughly, say, four days of, of you know, getting the order in, in into, the, into the product cycle. Then you have basically a day of molding a lid and the base, and then they'll cure. Then you have a day of foaming, then it'll cure. And then you have assembly day, and then it ships. Okay, so I've often wanted so to a week. cut a cooler in half. Yep. What's what's in the walls of a cooler? It's foam. Foam. So it's a two-part okay. foam that gets injected in a fixture. A fixture comes in, and holds the the lid or the base. You know, it holds its shape while a two-part foam gets injected inside. Then it bonds and cures. So it give you the insulation that way. Okay. I I mean, what's an empty sixty-five quart weigh? You know, that's a it's like 30, a finished cooler. Yeah, or, isn't it okay, like thirty pounds? It's thirty pounds. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's yeah. stout. It's stout. Yeah. yeah, it's stout. You know, and as and it's one thing you know you often hear is, but a lot of people pick them up and like, oh, it's so light. I'm like, well, I'm glad you think that because <laughs> <laughs> as somebody who flies a lot and travels a lot for hunting, you right. know that if you fly coach, you got that fifty pound weight limit. Right. Um, and there's many many times, and I lived in Vermont, and I go down to, to visit my parents in Georgia and go hog hunting. Um, I know exactly. If I go and get a hog, if I had a you know, like a forty-five or thirty-five quart, you know how much hog I can fill in that cooler to hit my fifty-pound limit right. um, before I fly it home, and I've done that many, many, many times. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I think when most people look at the Orion cooler, at least the first thing that caught me is the latches, how they're they're completely different, and how flush mount they yep. are, and how easy they are to just. And I thought, I wonder if those things will kind of open up because of the way they they mount nope nope <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is you think you know i don't know if you saw the recent field and stream field and stream recently did a, a big premium cooler shootout and they I, have a guy I, in a bear suit and they throw it off the back of the truck and they use right. ours like in their online their facebook video yeah. and you see it go tumbling and i could see like something and i was like oh no oh no a latch opens so i had literally like i slow mode it yeah and i like zoomed in and i was like oh no that was just the rope handle on the side yeah. we're good like nothing <laughs> happened um, and they didn't have locked or anything you know but the, the camming style lot latch that's a very distinct feature um of our coolers and that nobody else has and that's just largely born again as a user you know i've stood on a lot of coolers fly fishing on oh, the decks right flats yeah bumps. right um and those latches i had you know fly fishing the number one rule to being successful is line management right um and last thing you want to do is be messing with your line while you're trying to get that important cast off and a lot of those toggle latches are very are very snag prone yeah um so having this totally flush um 
cam system basically on the latch keeps that nice and clean. Um, the other thing it does is that I have, you know, I have a four-door Jeep. Um, I'm right. often traveling with a lot of gear in it. Right. Um, and packing, squeezing packing stuff in, in you know, and then you kind of lock in this cooler. You slide it in from the back and you expect it to slide and kind of go in. Well, those toggle latches will often catch a bag yep. next to it and then you basically lose your seal you yeah that, that once that latch is open yeah the lead is still sitting down but you basically lose your seal so um you know if you're gonna go drive 30 hours to ontario and go deer hunting or or you know drive up there and far northern quebec on a bear hunt and then you got your bear and you, you then you got a 12 20 hour drive home you, you kind of want that staying good and cold yeah so the flush mount one solves that problem exactly it's, so it's it's just all those things and as we've talked over the the last year there's just lots of little things that i i look at it i'm like whoever did this whoever thought about some of these things hunts and fishes and and then i start following your blog i'm like all right. I, I, <laughs> I, uh, why did, how did I be so dumb as to start a TV show? I could be doing what Damon does if I was smart enough. But uh, so all those travels that you do, if you, and, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but if I say most memorable event of the last two years. Most definitely guiding dad on the caribou drop on Alaska. Your, your dad and you flew yeah. up there, you flew into the Brooks Range? Yeah. Out of so, where? Out of Fairbanks? Um, or? So, you know, we, Dad and I try to do a big, a big hunting trip uh, every fall. Okay. Um, Dad's retired colonel. Um, we hunted a lot, um, you know, wherever we were stationed in the world growing up, um, whenever we could, um, but didn't have like, a lot of time. He was very, very busy and to do a lot of things. And then once he retired from that, he became county engineer in Chatham County, Georgia. Okay. And then it had more flexibility with his time. And so... <clears throat> Uh, we started trying to do these kind of annual trips. Cool. Um, and um, now that he's fully retired, he's and I'm very much, <laughs> he likes to call me his Sherpa. Um, but, and, I'm glad, and I'm glad to do it. Um, but uh, we try to do a nice, you know, a big fall trip every year. And um, we did a caribou hunt in Quebec um, with my brother and my father uh, when I lived in Vermont. Um, and it was kind of, we did a do it yourself. Um, but it was kind of, there were wall tents there ready for us, kind of dropped off, hunted. Um, and just, you know, I've been, this was my fourth trip to Alaska. Um, first time was 10 days solo with a backpack. And second trip was, um, uh, four weeks long. I left for that two days after proposing to my life, my wife. Love you, Ashley. Um, <laughs> I love you. I got to go, yeah, though. I, I proposed. I was like, I love you. Let's get married. I got to go. Uh, and, uh. So I went up for four, that was a four week trip. Um, wow. that was two weeks alone, then two weeks guiding my dad fishing and, um, uh, just backpacking in and doing floats, uh, hitchhiking. I love Alaska. It's the only place I've ever been able to hitchhike with a gun and a fly rod and a backpack <laughs> and like not have to wait. People will just stop and pick you up. It's awesome. <laughs> and, uh, that, that's, that should be an indicator of, I want to live somewhere where I can hitchhike with my firearm right. on my shoulder and someone right. will still pick me up. I had a Watermaster, Watermaster <laughs> little pack, pack raft on my back and a dry bag and a, my Marlin 4570 in one hand and a fly rod in the other. No problem. Five minutes. See you later. Um, so that was my second trip. Then my third trip was five weeks. Um, and that was two weeks alone and then a week guiding a buddy from Vermont and then my friend Brian and then a week guiding my dad and then a week guiding my brother and arranged a fly-in drop and we did 
caught you know 23 inch grayling and arctic char and beautiful I just had a had a ball um and then and my dad and i just kept saying you know, we got to come back and hunt we got to come back and hunt here and so finally we said let's pull the trigger and we found you know somebody who could fly us in um so hired an air charter um through deltana outfitters um there's a big this is part of like a, an eight part series i wrote on the orion cooler site yeah about like how to do this hunt on your own um as the guy who tries to do that in my tv show i read that i'm like whoa I got to go do this. Yeah, we're good. I'm glad. I hope it's helpful. I, you know, I, I love, I do very much love sharing information. Uh, I've gotten contacted by a lot of people saying, you know, this is great. I'm thinking about this hunt. This answers a lot of questions. Yeah. Um, and it's on the Orion Coolers blog, it's on the right? Orion Coolers blog, our yeah. Orion Life blog. Um, yeah. If you search for a post by Damon Bungard, you can find all the ones I've written there. And um, this was a part, uh, I think it's entitled Do It Yourself, Alaska Caribou. And it's part eight. I think it's eight series, eight part series. And um, so we, you know, we we flew up, uh, hired hired. A, I got a suburban rental suburban, um, and uh, we drove all the way to you know to Fairbanks, um, and then you know the Hall Road, uh, the Delta. Um, yeah. It's a common, you know, it's it's a, it's a venture in and of itself. You know, people <laughs> travel from around the world to go up the Hall Road to Dead Horse. Um, and we met all kind of characters. So we hit that's 400 miles of dirt. Um, so we hit that um, and drove. You know, saw moose and you saw I mean, a lot of good wildlife on the way up. Um, uh, even ran into a, this is a funny story, a little side story on the way. So <laughs> living in Vermont, you just run into people. Vermonsters have a reputation of just showing up everywhere. Okay. And here we were 300 miles up the Deltana Highway um, or the uh, Hall Road and um, Dalton Highway. Um, and... There's, the road was washed and there was like a construction crew out because all the truckers used this road hauling the pipeline and uh, I'm the one car I'm the only car stopped and then here comes a green license plate behind me and I was like you gotta be kidding me <laughs> and I got out I got out and so sure enough they're from Vermont they had driven all the way from Vermont and one of them knew a blacksmith buddy of mine Jim Fectow in Hinesburg Vermont so it was hilarious anyway so uh Eventually, we, we slept that night by a quarry and then got up the next morning, just, you know, tended right behind our Suburban and then got up the next morning, hit the airstrip, and we're like, we were actually there a few days early, um, and we expected to just fish for grayling and char, but we waited for our flying day, and they're like, hey, you guys, guards want to go? And we were yeah. like, okay. Sign us up. So we were yeah. like, let me just, you know, <laughs> abort, the, abort the rental car here and do it. So we did the whole, like, just ripped the rental car open and got the Orion out and took our food out and... You know, you can't you can't actually fly an Orion that size, a sixty-five in on little on little um, uh, super cubs. Super cub, yeah. um, but we had all of our you know we had all of our food planned. Ashley, my, love you, Ashley. And she had made us. A, she goes, she's great when I go on these trips. She'll she'll put together a menu so of like a shopping list. So when I get to Anchorage, I know everything I need to buy, yeah. and then I have a menu by day and by meal of what ingredients I just bought and what the what the meal's gonna be, the recipe. So I can just pull it out of this <laughs> out of this sheet. And I can, oh, breakfast today, Dad, is this. And this is what, so then I can, so it saves a lot of time when you're shopping. Um, and usually I try to hit Anchorage and get my stuff and get out. Um, but we got flown in, you know, uh, the pilots were like, hey, we saw a bunch of caribou yesterday. We're going to get you in and they're going to be right there. Awesome hunt. Well, we get where they wanted to put us and there were no caribou, which is typical of caribou. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we flew around a bit looking for them, finally found some 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 groups moving a certain direction and you know you can't hunt the day you fly in alaska so they try to put you down you know a day out right um 
so we did. We got we got dropped and um, got got our camp set up, and we we're by by this small stream and um, spent the night evening just sitting there glassing, watching caribou in the distance. Uh, and the next morning, six a.m., you know, zipper opens and got to get out and use the facilities and. There's caribou. Dad's like, hey, there's caribou, you know, 100 yards from the tent. Whoa. Um, so we had spotted a plan the night before. I wanted to send him one way, me the other way. And um, that's what we did and uh, got out and circled them. And well, I got in position and followed them. And um, by the end of the day, there were three bulls on the ground and <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of work <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to be done. Um, and I spent the next, you know, day um, till late that night packing meat um, and then – the next day and by by lunch the next day we had three bulls hanging in camp and um in that blog i go into some of the some of the little tricks that i've learned you know one of the biggest problems up there on the tundra is figuring out how to hang meat right because there's no there's no wood to build meat poles or anything else really and you can you know if you have your meat let's say you have in the tag bag or whatever it's in um you can kind of lay it on some scrub bushes and stuff to prop it up and get some airflow around it but uh I had just kind of brainstormed, okay, um, you know, what's good for, um, you know, making like a tripod um, and uh, folks at Mountain Safety Research, MSR, make these great tarp poles in it that I'd used. And so I flew up, you know, six of these poles so I could rig up uh, a tripod to, to hang the meat off. And, and once one center weight kind of locks it in and then you can hang the meat around the little tips you leave at the top. Oh. And then I also use that same system to hang a small tarp so that if it's raining, I can keep the meat dry and right. have airflow around it. Yep. So we rigged that up and I show photos and details of all of how I did that. That's one of the biggest things I've had people, you know, contact me about, oh, that's really helped. That's a really neat trick Great. of how to do that. Um, and it's a very lightweight system, but it takes all of the, you can obviously you can you can try to rely on having a bush there or finding wood, but good luck you yeah. know relying on that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, we had a great hunt. You know, we had we had we spent the next few days. We we saw a wolf feeding on a carcass, and we saw we had some great stalks um, on some other bulls. Just couldn't quite get it done. And the last evening, I was finishing up my last recipe there on on from Ashley's menu, and um, was getting up to just start doing dishes, and and I'm gathering him up and dad just stands up and he's like there's a bull 100 yards behind the tent coming right at us and i was like haha good one <laughs> <laughs> and, and sure enough i looked and here comes this bull and we had seen him once before um in the creek bed um he's kind of these we caught him the oddball he had like you know all caribou racks are certainly always kind of unique and funky and he had like one kind of longer forward um, rat side to his rack and then another one kind of up and back and some funky long spindly tines coming off and and uh, sure enough, here he comes. So I was like, "Get your boots on, get that, get his boots on." And got, I was like, "We're gonna." We used the tent silhouette to slip out of his out of his sight to get down in the creek bottom, and got over there. And I was like, "He's gonna pop up over here. He's gonna pop up over here." Because um, I popped my pack up for Dad to shoot off and got ready. And sure enough, here he disappeared. We kind of creep up, and he's gone in one of the little uh, undulations in the land there. And there he there he just emerged, and boom, there he was, eighty yards away. And oh, cool. um, Dad shot him and. Uh, he kind of took off towards this bog, and I was like, "Oh no, just don't go die in the water." <laughs> um, and and another round finally put him down over there, and then here it was. It was last night. We had already called in for the air for an okay. air. We had sat phone. You know, we already texted right. him. Hey, we're super happy with our three. You know, we didn't want to risk losing the meat after being there for five days. Right. Um, and so they were already coming in the morning, regardless. Yeah. Um, and uh, 
by 10:30, that bull was hung in camp with the rest and we were finishing off our whiskey and i was texting them saying <laughs> if you ca- even if you can't get us drop whiskey <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so we enjoyed ourselves and how came. old is your dad uh that's a good question i should know this better but i want to i'm gonna go with 63 oh okay yeah all right um so we yeah we got so next morning um bad weather was kind of delaying and they finally got us out and which is typical in Alaska. we were lucky to get out when we did otherwise we would have lost a number of days in a storm that came in but i uh, yeah. got out and drove the 20 hours back you know got the i used paracord and strapped four caribou racks on the top of a rental suburban <laughs> little trick <laughs> i learned from a vermonter and uh <laughs> thanks harper and uh and then took off to uh to anchorage <laughs> oh man so that was a very memorable trip well, um i what you put <clears throat> what you just told there damon and how you wrote this out when i first read that i'm like you know what randy you should just call damon and say i want to replicate this as a TV episode, but it would take me four episodes to do it. <laughs> there'd yep. be the logistics episode. There'd yeah. be, there, in Alaska, there's always a weather episode. There always but, is. I, I mean, just count on it. And, and there's always a something's going to go wrong part of Absolutely. an episode. And hopefully, there would be the hey, we filled our tags part of the right. episode. But Alaska is such a cool place. I've been so lucky to be able to go there a lot, and you know. I, I have family who live there, my college roommate, who is my uncle. My mom's brother is a year older than me. He lives there. And then another uncle who's, a, who's three years older than me lives there. And I go up there a lot. And I, I feel so spoiled mm. to be able to go to, a, to live in a country where you can go to a place like Alaska. Right. And go have this kind of experience. And Absolutely. I felt my first trip to Alaska, again, was alone, me in a backpack, my first night first night i'd park the rental car pitch the tent just a little pull off the side of a stream i walk up this stream i'm i'm looking at king salmon you know the size of my leg swimming by me <laughs> and two wolves playing grab ass with each other come down and jump in the creek 20 yards from me yeah and i'm sitting here and i'm like i got bear prints on this on the gravel i'm got a king salmon on my feet and i got two wolves looking at me like what are you doing here and i'm saying the same thing and i'm just like wow you know welcome to alaska and yeah. It's a truly wild place. It really makes you appreciate how places that, you know, man hasn't interfered with can really be. Um, and then it's, it is just, it truly is a land of adventure. It is uh, an amazing, amazing place. Yeah. And that's why I, I, people who watch our show know that I do that spring bear hunt in the Southeast every year. And I, it, it's now on a draw. And one year I, I didn't draw. And it was like, the year it took for the calendar to come around when I finally drew again. And I was like, damn it, how did I not get to go to Southeast Alaska this right. year? Because the country's so vast. And it's not like the lower 48 where you're going to drive and park at a trailhead and hunt. The, I mean, yeah. you're, you're probably flying or boat or something. Yeah, you can do... There, there, there are limited options you can do from the road, um, you know, but if you're willing to hike, you can, you know, a half mile off the road in Alaska, some places you might as well be 500. Yeah. Um, it, it really can be like that. Um, it can be that isolated that quick. Um, there, there are, you know, once you, you learn to explore the road system, but there's a reason there's so many choppers and so many <laughs> floatplanes out there because once you, once you really get out there, it's, 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 it's amazing. Yeah. Is there a more beautiful fish? Than a full spawn char- Arctic char. 
Um, you know, I'm a big fan of, of that's one of my favorite things to do. I could catch 100 fish in a day, but if I catch that one male char in spawning colors, I'm happy. That's all I'm really looking for. Yeah. And, um, uh, and no matter the species, Arctic char um, spawn, and spawning colors are incredible. Um, I've been fortunate to catch some amazing wild, like prehistoric uh, brook trout in Maine, like you catch in Labrador, you know, 20 plus inch brookies in full spawning colors with teeth that look like pike and wow. just gnarly, gnarly, amazing fish. And it, it is really hard. Um, I certainly, I fish for memories and, uh, it's really hard to beat, um, no matter the size of a, a, a really beautiful char in spawning colors. Yeah, it's. And that's there's so many things that I've been lucky to experience in Alaska. The probably the thing about Alaska that strikes me as my one memory is I was up there moose hunting when 9/11 happened in 2001. Mm. And again, my uncles picked me up in Fairbanks. This is how spoiled I am. I I fly into Fairbanks. Here comes my uncle, picks me up. We go to the grocery store, get all the supplies. They're already down the Tanana River. They've got camp set up. I, it's like a taxi service for me. I mean, wow. it, it's like... That's this, pretty cool. That's good. Yeah. Take advantage while you it's, can. It's <laughs> their boats. It's their everything. Yeah. And uh, we go down there. I think we went in on the 5th of September. And my grandpa was still alive then. He lived up there. And one day he commented. He said, uh, man, I haven't seen any bush planes today. I didn't think anything of it. And so we didn't come out until the 18th. Wow. So... Um, we got someone we met on the river gave us word that something crazy had happened. And my, my one uncle, he's, he's got a funny way about him. He says, "Ah, oh, those pot smokers! You can't <laughs> believe anything they say." It was yeah, it was that weird. It was that wild how that happened. Yeah. And then when we came out, it took it. We were way down the Tanana River. We went. We got put in at Ninana, and we came out. And there were a lot of people at the boat ramp, and they're all asking, "Hey, how long have you guys been in the bush? Oh, we've been in since the fifth they're like, you are not going to believe what happened while you were gone. And they're right. I, I couldn't believe it. I, I still remember going to Ninana to the little bar there and the TV was on and I'm like, did I just get shipped to right. Which a different planet? Did I leave planet? from and come back to? Yeah. yeah. And uh, all the airports were shut down. So I, I didn't know how I was going to get out of Fairbanks. And none of us knew what the... T- what the travel the 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 carry-on type restrictions were going to be so one of my favorite hunting knives <laughs> the, mm. you know it was in my bag i yeah you didn't even think about it Taking at the time the, right and my so, dad is notorious for donating knives to the airport <laughs> but uh you know and i argued with the lady i'm like no that is like a family i i need that she's like no you're not getting that i'm like what i, I look like i'm gonna blow this plane up i like, right there's and so don't make I, that comment yeah <laughs> <laughs> so i that was one of the more remarkable alaska experiences i had because i we shot four moose on that trip there were That's nine of us meat. and uh the, here, here's my advice to anybody and if my cousin patrick is listening to this he was fresh out of the service uh, i think patrick is what is he 12 years younger and i am 11 years younger and my one uncle shot a moose way off the river, which stupid. I mean, anyone who's had to deal with an Alaska moose knows yeah. you shoot it as close to the river as you can. And uh, Patrick and a couple of us were walking in there to haul out a quarter, and uh, a full-blown Alaska moose quarter is 
big. And Patrick was just this really stout, six foot three, long legged, nothing but piano wire, you know, just, you know, I said, Patrick, I bet you any money you can't haul these two hind quarters out of here. You want to bet? I'm like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he hauled them out. I mean, not in one load. I right. mean, separate loads. Had but, it, yeah. man, that sure does save the rest of us a lot of work. Yeah. I can, you <laughs> know, until people really pack meat, a lot of people think, oh, it won't be a problem. Until you're walking on the, the tundra in Alaska and see how hard that is and learn to pack meat, you know, it's an acquired skill. You know, I, um, I'm, not a, I'm not a big guy. Um, I'm pretty small-framed. And, um, you know, I've carried a whole caribou, you know, short distance. It's, it's, a, it's, a, lot, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, they named they named a ridge on the camp I was at in Quebec, Damon's Ridge, because they found out we're at. We had the first day on that Quebec caribou hunt, I I passed two bulls. I took their photos, and I was like, "Oh no, this is only going to be good." Well, I didn't see fur for four more days, <laughs> and, and I was sitting on this ridge with Dad, and I spot caribou um, on this far ridge line, uh, a few miles away, and I kind of angling towards us, and I'm like, "I'm going." And I said, stay put. I'm going to see if I can intercept this this band. And I took off and went down through this bog and um, got over there. And here they come. Ended up no bulls in the group, but I wanted. I was meat hunting by far at that point, and so I took this big cow out of it. Okay. She had she had double shovels and, <laughs> and like palmation, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, and shot her. And then I just went up, and it started snowing, and they wanted us back at the camp by like six thirty. This was probably about four o'clock. Um, and I turned on my, my GPS and I was two and a half miles from our canoe, from our boat. Um, and I was I sat down I was like, well, I'm gonna sit down and I'm going to eat a sandwich. <laughs> so I sat down, <laughs> I ate my sandwich and I got on the radio to that. And I said, well, dad, <clears throat> I said, I'm going to be a minute cause I got a, I got a caribou here to cut up. And, um, he wanted to get my brother and come look for me. And I was like, this is, there's don't just stay put. You're just going to make the situation far worse. And, uh, put that, that, that cow went on my back and I just put my head down and, and came back. I remember I went straight through that bog. I had to hike around. I went straight through it. Um, waist, you know, waist deep and cold. Well, I was like, well, I just knew there was a warm cabin waiting back. And, um, so sure enough, got that, got that caribou back to the, back to the boat and dropped it. And, I passed dad and brother on the hike across the ridge they were on. I was like, I'm not stopping because I don't know that I can restart. Yeah. <laughs> and I just kept my head down and going. And, and I was like, I've never seen you so tired. And I was like, well, that's, that's a lot of work. Yeah. So. Well, you know, we're sitting here talking about these remarkable experiences we in America get to do because of public lands, because of the fact that wildlife is held by the public in America. But you were telling me how growing up with your dad being, was he in the Marine Corps? Army. Army. Yep, Colonel. That, that you ended up traveling a lot. You went to places in Europe. You were, you were in yeah. other places. And you probably got to see that, guess what? The rest of the world doesn't necessarily have the bounty Absolutely. of opportunity that we have. Absolutely. And it's something you very much see when you travel. You know, you, when you travel in Europe, and if you're a European hunter, my dad was fortunate, um, you know, my a lot of my family comes from a hunting background. My grand, great-great-grandfather was a game warden in Austria and Bungard's an Austrian name. And um, so we have a lot of, of, you know, Bavarian and German and Austrian hunting heritage in our family. And um, when you're in the military, you can kind of get, they, they set aside tags for military officers. Okay. So he was able to hunt sham, chamois and Raybok and everything. I was too young to hunt with him then. I go hiking in the mountains and look at them, but I um, yeah. wasn't able to hunt. But you, you see 
um, it's very ritualistic, which I still do. I still, um, um, uh, you know, do the, the, the prayer and put a leaf in their mouth and yeah. um, thank, thank an animal when I take it. And that's, you know, part of that kind of your German heritage. But you also see um, that it's, it's very much class system based and it's very much an upper elite class thing to do is to be able to hunt. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, Roosevelt and everybody else, you know, didn't want happening in, in America and right. setting aside public land so that everybody, regardless of class or social status or money, um, had a chance an opportunity to enjoy that land and, and hunt and um, whether it was whether it was you know for sport or, or for sustenance you know I mean regardless it's, it's up to them right you know, but the land should be there it shouldn't be chosen for them yeah and uh, so you know I've, I've definitely when you travel you see it a lot um, you know you see um, you know what private land you know we lived at Fort Hood Texas where I graduated high school um, and you know texas hunting um it's it's private i mean that's that's a good example right. of of what you know private hunting and nothing you know necessarily you just see the extreme it can go to when everything is based on private land so public land you know it's it, it creates its own set of challenges but but it's so unique system that we have here in the u.s to have the plethora of it and the availability of it um and some of the you know, trophy quality and variation. You know, you can choose whatever you want. You really can do whatever you want if you do your research and you put your mind to it um, and figure out where to go and what you want to do. It's just whether it's fly fishing or, or hunting or, or backpacking or anything, just having the access to go kayaking or just whatever you want to do. Right. Uh, it's, it's, it's a uniquely American thing, um, and it's a wonderful thing that we have. Yeah. The, it, I mean, you fish a lot. I mean, I fish a lot too, yeah. but I've not fished some of the places you have. Is the water in some of these countries for fishing water? Is that private also? Where yes, you, it very much can be. Um, yeah. Where you have beats, and you know, you have very much. You know, it's it's very hard. You know, fishing for Atlantic salmon, for instance, in Scotland or in England, it's a very it's a very very hard thing to do, and a very very elitist thing to do. Whereas, you know, and I could drive from Vermont to Quebec and go fish for Atlantic salmon and catch forty four inch, you know, twenty five pound Atlantics. Um, that's in Canada, but still, yeah. Can, Canada's also got a lot of great public land. Um, mm -hmm. So that's not true everywhere. It's right. just you know. I um, when I hear people complain about oh the U.S. this or the Feds this or the you know I yeah. don't have it. I wish I had this. I'm like, you need to go somewhere for a couple of years and see just how good we absolutely. have it here. It's I I love the fact that I live in a country where. A guy growing up like I did in a little town of Big Falls, Minnesota, who, when his parents divorced when they, when I was 11, you know, it was not an easy livelihood for my mom. Um, and I always say this, and people probably tire of hearing it, but if hunting or fishing would have cost a dollar a day, I wouldn't be here as a hunter or a fisherman because my mom could not have afforded a dollar a day. It would have been out of our budget. Right. But because we had a public river, we had so much public land in the way of state forests and national forests and lakes and everything else. Here, 40 years later, I am this passionate advocate right. for wild places and for the next generation of people who hopefully get to live the good old days like I feel I've been living the good right. old days. And Absolutely. I, you know, I, 
let's see more and more of what's coming on. You know, being learning to, you know, God, it seems so simple now, but to say play outside on your own and make your own decisions and be independent yeah. and learn consequences of actions and decisions. Yeah. Um, it, it's something, it's, it, to me, public land gives you all of that. It teaches all of that. Yeah. Uh, being outside teaches you things. You learn so much every time. You know, there's, little, there's this, this public canyon, uh, public land that I hunt near my home in Tennessee. And every time I go in there, I find something new and cool. Is, is that where your blog, your last blog was written about or one of your recent blogs? Um, could be one. There was an Orion one I talked about, okay. about um, Eastern Eastern backpack hunting, yeah. which is a rare thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I moved there. Uh, and there's this, cause this canyon near my, near my home. And one of the local friends I made, I was like, well, who hunts in the canyon? He was like, well, nobody hunts in there. Deer just get old and die in there. And I'm saying to myself, <laughs> those two sentences don't go hand in hand where I'm from. So I need to go in there. Yeah. And I don't like, I, I don't like having company in the woods when I hunt. Yeah. Um, and I'm willing to put in that effort to go to earn that. Yeah. Um, and I, and even if it means there's no animals there or less fewer animals, that's just my, my preference. And you know, it's because people can't get a four wheeler in there. They don't, they don't hunt. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you use ATVs properly, nothing against that. Um, but the Eastern mentality of, you know, putting a backpack on and cutting in there. And he's like, well, if you kill one, how are you going to get it out? Yeah. Like the, even the, the concept <laughs> of quartering an animal in the field and putting it on your back is just completely foreign. I, when I grew up in the Midwest, it, I would, it never entered my mind right. to do that. Right. Never. It, right. it, it's funny you say this about Tennessee because a couple of guys got a hold of me from Pennsylvania. And they said, Randy, there is a place in Pennsylvania where it's like just what you said. There are old, deer dying of old age in there. Because it's one of the few places in Pennsylvania you really got to bust your hump to get in there. There's not a road. There's not a anything mm -hmm. else. You should come and do it. And it's really intriguing to me. And then I e emailed and replied and said, you know, if I go do this and put it on TV, it won't be. Yeah. It's not <laughs> going to be that special right. place. So right now I'm like, I want. I want it to stay special. Yeah. But it, yeah, it's funny that place that I wrote, um, some people that live there know it and, and they're like, Oh, I know you're hunting. I was like, don't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> so like, Cause most people don't, they have no idea. And so the fact is along the Cumberland Plateau, there's a lot of public land. Um, and it's cause it's just rough terrain right where the plateau drops down. Um, and, uh, and people just don't go in there and largely cause you know, there's a lot of other deer that you don't have to work for. Right. Yeah. So, that's, but you know, I go in there and I find caves, and I find, uh, I find, I found a box turtle in December. You know, I found, I found this amazing, mm. this amazing shed this year of a buck that I've been trying to find, and I knew where he was bedding, and this this cool bluff. There's a natural bridge, a natural stone bridge down in this gorge, and the river there, uh, uh, the rivers in Tennessee are really interesting because they're all tied to these caves so they won't run until the cave's full of water so you, you wow. might be go you might see a river and then go around a bend and the river's gone because it went underground then it'll come back another quarter mile away Whoa. so it's kind of wild because there's a cave there and until that cave's full of water the river won't actually run okay so where i go in like sometimes i have to bring down like a lot my alaska hip uh, over boots on uh, neo's pullover boots to cross the river sometimes it's bone dry yeah um but there was this buck, and I knew he was working that area. I knew where he was bedding. I was find, kept finding beds, smelling his – I could smell him on the leaves on the bed. And, and a buddy from Vermont came down, and I was like, all right, there's, I, I know I'm, I, 
let's go do let's go and I'm gonna I put him on one spot and a knoll. I'm like, if he's on there and he's and he busts me, it's this very isolated knoll. I'm like, if he and if he goes, up, you might get a shot. And I start cresting the knoll, and I'm just sneaking, 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 and then I just see tines. And I'm like, oh, I got him. I'm like he's bedded in his bed, and I got him. And I get up on, I, I, I keep. I'm like, he's really standing still. He's either watching me or, and I can just see tines over the horizon line. And then. And then I just like something's not right here. And then I kind of crept up, and it was just his antler laying there. Oh, from the, from seeing. the spring I mean, he before. Had, you know, he had fourteen. No, it was, it was fresh in December. He had shut it. I bet the night before. So oh, the blood really? on the base. Okay. Also, oh, in your deer, like in Minnesota where I grew up, some of the deer shed in December. Yeah. And so you're saying some yeah, of your I deer found it in December. Okay. Yeah, I got it. It was the earliest that I've ever found. Yeah. Um, and this was the year of finding early sheds. I was hunting here in Montana, up in the Yak. Uh, and we found a moose antler and before Thanksgiving, really blood on it. Huh? Um, so anyway, I think that was kind of that deer's way of kind of giving me the middle finger. Saying, <laughs> I got you. <laughs> <laughs> Try again, yeah. buddy. Yeah, you had me right, but I won. <laughs> uh, well, it's, it's just cool to live in a country where you and I are sitting here telling these experiences. Every place in America, some guys could be sitting around a fire or sitting around their yeah. camp telling the same kind of stories, and that is not the norm of the world. No, it's it, not. It, and I think that's why conservation in America has this just – it is now – it wasn't always, but in the last 100 years has become so much a part of the fabric of who we are and what we hold ourselves out to be that you can attribute that to the fact that we have a cadre of hunters and anglers and people connected to these public lands. Absolutely. Um, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to, you know, obviously as a hunter and as somebody who likes to promote hunting and, and eating what you kill, um, you know, I, and I have friends across the gamut. Um, yeah, and we all do. And, and one thing that I've said, you know, they're like, well, you know, why would you hunt something? You're just going to kill, why would you kill the old one? You're just going to kill them. Um, you, you, they, they won't sustain themselves. And I've said after traveling, you see this, I said, when, when humans value an animal, it'll become extinct. Yeah. When hunters value an animal, it'll be protected. Right. The same is true with the land. Um, they, you know, humans, meaning they will hunt an animal, poach it, whatever, it's got value, they'll kill it until they, it's gone. Out of greed, yeah. out of whatever else, out of ignorance, whatever you want to call it. When hunters value it, it's protected so you can continue to hunt it. It gets conserved. It gets conserved. Right. Wise use and, for the benefit of future. Absolutely. Yeah. And you see that, um, you know, when, when you travel and you see overuse. Um, and I think it's great how some of the lessons that we've learned, um, you know, America should be a leader when it comes to that. Um, the way we've conserved land, um, the way we've conserved animals. And you see that, you know, we went, to our, we went on our you know, honeymoon to Belize, my wife and I. Um, you know, what they've done, Bonefish and Tarpon Trust for... You know, protecting permit and bonefish and tarpon in, in, in the in the waters in Belize and other areas, and doing that research and realizing, you know, there's a it's a big system here, and you can't just keep plucking little pieces and expect it all to keep working together the same. And and land is such a big, you know, wildlife corridors and um, having that that conserved land, um, it's just it's just so important. Um, you know, my father uh, as county engineer in, in Chatham County, Georgia, when he after he retired, um, they you know 
would do wildlife conservation mitigation banks. So if they had to move a road and it impacted a wetland, they had to set aside that much for conservation. Right. Um, so there's actually a Bungard Park now in Savannah. Um, that's <laughs> of all these, once they accrue so much of that wetland um, bank, they'll go buy a large parcel. And that right. became a Bungard Park um, uh, where we put in a kayak trail and lakes and fishing. And it's public. It's everybody yeah. can go in there and use this. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, I, I just think you know, that mentality um, of, of if you're going to use it, conserve it somewhere else, you know, one for one. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's like my closet at home. It's too, too, full, too much camo in it. You know, if I get a new piece of camo, it means I got to give one I have go. now. I got to give away to some lucky person. Um, <laughs> that's just the rule. My wife's like, take it off the couch. Why is it on the couch? Why is it hanging here? Uh, so yeah, that's part of it. But I, it's, it's the same kind of thing. You know, we, we have to – Protecting the you know, BHA is, is a great organization. Happy to be here supporting it. Um, one one interesting comment that I've heard because I do I you know I do all these things I fly fish and I hunt and um, Charlie Ingram. Um, some of these viewers may know Charlie Ingram. He's a he's been in the, the professional bass fishing world for a long long time. He's a friend in Tennessee. Uh, lived near our factory and we became friends and uh, you know he came up with Jimmy Houston and Bill Dance and those guys okay. legend of the outdoors and uh, Charlie makes fun of me because he says fly fishermen don't hunt <laughs> and, I said, and i says well you know maybe maybe in the southeast that's true and it kind of does uh, tend to be true in the southeast i suppose um but i was like well i think of all my friends out west that a lot do fly fish and they hunt yeah. um, and they appreciate the access to it and that could be it could just be my friends because they do that that's sure it's partially too, yeah. a part of it but the same token there's a lot of people out here who fly fish and who hunt and who want access to rivers um, who want access to land and I think BHA is just a great kind of representation of that um, group yeah. of people who cross over in what they do in the outdoors um, and they just want to see it continue to have access and be that way yeah it's and that you know just outside the door here is probably 500 people just walk in that little hall area there with all the displays who most of them if if someone said there's a sheep on that mountain and you get to pick who you think would be able to find that sheep, my money's going to be on a couple of those guys walking that floor out there. There's that I some know. folks out there who know how to get around a mountain. I'm sure <laughs> they would they would walk my sorry accountant butt into the ground, <laughs> leave me there, and kick me off the trail when they came by three days later. They're just they're yeah. you can tell what, you know some guys are just like nothing but leather and sinew it's, right built for uh, the mountain you know yeah and people see what i do and they, they don't see all the work that i do and how much time i spend at a computer um actually sitting and yeah. sitting is the and computers in one sense yeah they're part of our livelihood but they're also the bane of my existence of you know human but human beings weren't designed to sit <laughs> and there's been more than one occasion where i hit a mountain and the hunting trip is beginning and then i start packing and i realize I need to sit so much less. <laughs> I, I, I'm the same way. I tell people that for four months out of the year, I drive a desk for a living. Yeah. That's driving. It's is really the worst thing. It, yeah. It, I look at how much time I spent driving and I'm like, this is unbelievable. You're not getting exercise. You're not, but you know, so. it's comes with a trade off, I suppose. But yeah, some of the, some of these mountain guides, um, it'll, it'll mountains, will, they're not very forgiving. They'll whip you in the shape pretty darn quick. I know. And I'm, I'm 51. And I've told my wife for years, I'm going to backpack hunt for elk until I'm 65. 
And last year, I mean, I've still got a big bone bruise right on my tibia. And it, it still hurts if I touch it right now. And I'm thinking, you know, with all these aches and pains, Randy, you are going to be a walking apothecary. You're going to be some sort of medical chest in your, on your <laughs> backpack just to get up the mountain by the yeah. time you're 65. But I, I, and so there's times I'm like, well, that's unrealistic. But then there's also parts of me that says, you know what? When I get to the point where I can't do that, yeah, it'll be somewhat remorseful or, or sor- sorrowful, but I will know I've had my day. That's right. You I, played the game. Yeah, I, I did. Uh, I took every chance that right. I could to go do it. I enjoyed it. I, I tried to conserve it, I, and I don't regret a minute of it. If this old beat-up body can't do it anymore, oh, right. well. That's, yeah, that's why, but, I, that's why I love, you know, love guiding Dad so much. You know, I don't mind carrying the extra load and helping pack his animal off. Um, you know, you know, it's gonna, we're going to do this so much longer. So yeah. Uh, we look forward to it, and um, it's come yeah. to the territory. But. I, I can't emphasize that enough. My dad passed away when he was 62. Um, and so that was in 2004. What's that? 12 years ago. And as much as he and I never had a super close relationship, the times we did have a close relationship was hunting season. He would sober up during hunting season. And... It was the one time where we re- I really got to know my dad of mm. what he could be and how he could look at the world. And uh, anyone listening, if you have a parent that likes the outdoors, all I can say is do what you can to go out there and spend time with them, just Absolutely. like you would your own kids. Because the day will come when they're not here. Right. And it's, it, it, it's just a... A hollower feeling at times when you wish for that day to, man, what I wouldn't give to just sit out there on Stars Bog, the place north of, of or south of our little town, and uh, you know, wait for the deer to cross on the, the railroad grade, as he would always talk about, or or go out by the creek by the sawmill or whatever it is. But the, those days are gone, and and I enjoyed the ones we had, but man. Right. Your parents, it, it's a, it's as much fun hunting with your parents as it is your children. Absolutely. Um, I'd encourage anybody with their kids, parents that can still go, take every opportunity you can to do so. Yeah. So before we wrap this up, Damon, you were telling me, and, and you're the second guy. I, I, I've hunted pronghorn with a good friend of mine, Bryce DeForest from Boise, Idaho. He is He loves snakes. We would be in New Mexico, and he would hear a snake, and he would have to find that thing. Yep. And he would catch it, and he's walking around with this rattlesnake in his hand. Hey, look at this, and he's showing it to me. Yep. And I'm, like, ready to climb up a telephone pole. I'm like, Bryce, get that thing out of here. And my camera guy, he was even worse. He, I mean, I run into snakes. I dodge them. I, I'm fine with them when I'm out there, but sure, don't, don't be putting them next to me. It right. is kind of the thing. So you're telling me about this snake deal that you've... Yeah, I've always loved snakes. and That was one thing that got me outside just a ton as a kid was going snake hunting, going looking for snakes. So as a kid, we'd fly home from wherever we were stationed in the world. My brother and I lived with my grandparents in South Carolina and my my grandfather, Daddy John, uh, ex-Marine, and he just wanted me out learning to shoot guns and catch snakes. And if he found a snake in the woodpile, he'd come grab me to come catch it. I got a photo. I bet I'm not, you know... I don't know how tall, three and a half feet tall, and I got an old Army ROTC shirt on, and I got a 
big black snake by its head and over my, my <laughs> arm straight up in the air and there's still a snake on the ground and I got the biggest smile on my face. Um, in second grade and we lived in Kansas and uh, Fort Leavenworth and I just went all, I had this creek behind the house and I just, every day after school, just going snake hunting in the creek, just going snake hunting in the creek. I had 50 snakes in my room. In, in, in your cage, bedroom? In my bedroom that I had found. My very tolerant mother. Love you, mom. Uh, um, <coughs> what kind of snake? Those Garter are mostly snakes? ringneck snakes and okay. hognose snakes. Okay. Um, those small snakes. Um, and I, I remember I come home once and I had a snapping turtle in each hand by its tail. And I was walking <laughs> up our, our housing unit at Fort Leavenworth and my mom just yelled at me, put those things down. As I was just notorious for catching whatever I could and bring it home um, and uh, I went to school at Clemson University in South Carolina and, and I guided uh, backpacking and rock climbing up in Brevard North Carolina a wonderful place um, a lot of public land for hiking and access to the mountains and a lot of summer camps were there and I guided for one of those camps and I was scouting out a new uh, Camp Trasatonga um, and uh, uh, that's the camp I guided for and I was scouting out a new rock climbing area and got up there and I realized that I was when I topped out on this cliff, I was basically at a timber rattler den. Oh, wow. So I, I, caught, I proceeded to catch nine timber rattlers and two copperheads, and I put them in my backpack, rappelled back down, and brought them back to the camp. And then every, every Wednesday, I'd take one of the rattlesnakes out and let the kids see the fangs and touch the rattle and do all that kind of stuff. And in oh the summer, goodness. we let them go. Uh, and so I've just, you know, in, uh, in high school in Texas, uh, at Fort Hood, uh, we'd we had some properties we had access to, and I'd go out and I'd catch one or two rattlesnakes, you know, every time I went after, after school with Dad and um, got into rattlesnake taxidermy after meeting a taxidermist there and actually got second and third place at the 1995 Texas State Championships for rattlesnake mounts. Um, <laughs> one was a 60-incher. It was funny because I dropped my dad off at one ranch, and then I went alone. And I never went alone. I didn't, he always wanted to be with me, and I was like, oh, God, I'm going to go alone. I have my spots that I knew, and I was sitting there, and there was this rock that stuck out, and I often found uh, rattlesnake shed skins under it. And I was looking under this rock, and I noticed something like four inches from my boot move, and it was a tongue. It was a tongue flick of a oh, big rattlesnake, 60-inch rattlesnake. And I caught it. And I was, I was alone, and I had my snake tongs, and he was so long, I couldn't lift him up enough to lower him into the snake bag. Oh, wow. So I had to find a little bush, and I hung the snake bag by its drawstring on a bush, and I, and I squatted. I, like, do a, like I was doing a big, deep squat on my butt and with the snake in the air <laughs> over my head, and I got his tail into that bag and then stood up, lowering him down in one, one motion. <laughs> <laughs> put him in a cooler. Was not in a Ryan cooler at the time. Um, and put him in a cooler and put him in the car and uh, bro drive him back to go get my dad. And, and he he comes walking out and he's like, well, did you see anything? And I was like, uh, nope. And I said, found a little one. And I opened the cooler up and he uh. saw this thing in there. And he says, you're never going alone again. <laughs> <laughs> and took him home and... Um, mm. When they got into, you know, it's, it's really hard to stuff a, it's really, it's really easy to hide a bullet hole in a, in a furred animal when, right. when you mount them. It's very hard in a snake where you have no, Scales, there's no fur right. to, to cover it up. So the most, in the most humane way to kill a rattlesnake is to freeze them. They just, you put them in live in the freezer and they'll go into hibernation and they'll just basically expire. Right. I'm going to freeze solid. So okay. My mom was, again, very tolerant, but I'd put them in the freezer and then I'd come back and get a cookie sheet and put them on and kind of arrange them to position and so they'd, and then I'd freeze them and then um, stuffed them and, and then we'd, huh. eat, we'd eat them. I yeah. love rattlesnake. Um, tastes like chicken, right? Tastes like chewy chicken. 
<laughs> yeah. So and, and to this day, I have at home. I have now. I have boas and pythons. I have green tree python and an annulated tree boa. And a lot of them are from areas I've been traveled to, and I've built their cages as natural vivaria with plant life, and they all have automated misting systems and heating systems and sensors um, to try to mimic where they're from. So I have rosy boas from Baja, and I have. Um, some very rare boas from Belize for their honeymoon that, that an Auburn researcher had brought back, a dwarf island species, um, wow. and have those in, in the cage. And so, yeah, I love Holy them. cow. Love you them. know, I, I was just going to tell the audience that this isn't the last you're going to hear of Damon because he and I are always conspiring about when our schedules would match up and we could go hunt somewhere. And I'd love to have you on the TV show to just to talk about this stuff because you got such cool interesting stories but if you're going to break out this snake stuff <laughs> you can leave all the leave all the snakes at home i can leave them all at home now if we're out hunting and we're getting hungry and there's a rattlesnake now he might go on the fire i'm okay. just telling you right now all right he well might, he might be the appetizer i'm good with that because i've never eaten snake oh you haven't no oh it's really good Is I, it? I actually i've actually backstrapped him i've actually you can really? fillet if you're careful you can actually on a big rattlesnake you can get about a three foot long finger thumb diameter fillet all the way the across strap. the back a lot of people a lot of people cross section them yeah you know and fry them in that way and but i've actually just taken them and then it's you just cut it up in the chunks and it's like you're cooking the tendril or like you're cooking a ham of a frog leg or something you just put really? it in. yeah it's good huh. it's good stuff. <laughs> trust, trust me on this we'll prove it one time on television all right oh gosh well we've kept the audience here for quite a while i i could sit and tell stories but <laughs> tell the audience again where your uh, caribou do-it-yourself blog is at it's okay. orion coolers so if you just go to orion coolers.com um there will be a, a orion life link or a blog link and if you go to that um you can see all of the posts that come from our team members or people like myself or if you go to the team pull down and select my name damon bungard you can see all of the posts that i've written on the orion site. okay that i Anyone who's intrigued with doing a do-it-yourself Alaska caribou hunt yep. should read that. I also have a, a writer page uh, on, on on social media on Facebook, Damon S. Bungard, and all of whether I put a story up for Orvis or Winnebago or Orion, I'll put them on there. Okay. So we uh, we got any last little bits? We uh, is a lot of times we leave the audience with marital advice, but I'm fresh out of marital advice, so I'm I'm uh, I'm uh, done. Thank your doing wife that. when you do radio interviews about how much you get to travel. <laughs> there you go. And uh, my wife got wind of the fact that I had been doing uh, marital advice on the podcast, and she's like, "Really? I think I'm gonna start listening to that." And I'm like, "Oh no." I'm yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna pay. So back out of a backlash. I'm, I'm kind of retreating from that as my closing comments for a while. But uh, you got anything you want to leave the the listeners with? I just say get outside and play as much as you can. Have fun. Well, that's great advice. Um, a good friend of mine who passed away way sooner than he should have. He knew how much I loved to hunt. And anyone who reads my my blogs out on our Hunt Talk forum we'll see that my signature line is from him. And I said, Jerry, you got any uh, advice for me? It was our last conversation and he and I both knew it was our last conversation. And he, uh, he'd been super successful in business. He's a wonderful guy. And uh, he said, Randy, as much as you love to hunt, my best advice would be hunt when you can, because you're going to run out of health before you run out of money. Mm -hmm. And he was right. I, and I, I miss him dearly, but it was some of the most profound and best advice I ever got. And he gave me that advice in 2004 and, uh, 
It, it it gets to the point you just said. Go do it when you can because you don't know someday. Absolutely. You're no. not going to. If I have a complex about one thing, it's time. I can't stand wasting time. Yeah. And uh, getting out and time in the woods is never wasted. That's right. They're, they're <laughs> or on the water or right. wherever it is. So, well, folks, thanks for listening. Um, Damon has, has, I think, made it very apparent that he he lives the life he he is uh the guy he, he's the mind at orion coolers and if you're wondering why randy is so impressed with orion coolers uh i would say a lot of it is a reflection of damon's outdoor experiences his thoughts his his way of doing things and uh if you get the chance i would suggest you pick one up if nothing else go to oriancoolers.com and check them out and uh for us i hope that you guys will go to our youtube page uh we've really been pushing that hard and the amount of views we're getting on youtube is crazy um we're doing a new series out there called elk talk that is teaching everyone how to draw elk tags and now that we're through the drawings what the focus is is about ideas and planning and scouting from home and then later this summer we're going to talk about tactics and tips and techniques and equipment so go to our youtube channel we have a playlist called elk talk go to our youtube channel and we have a new playlist that we're throwing one up one a month it's called why i hunt and it's randy newberg kind of bearing his soul just opening himself up to say maybe this isn't how or why everyone else looks at it but this is why i hunt and i the response so far on YouTube has been really, really good. So, and if you want to follow all of our platforms, go to randynewberg.com. And those of you who, who are followers and members of our Hunt Talk Forum, you know how useful the information is out there and how much we share with each other and, and how much advice can be given and just the fun stories and pictures. Uh, that's at hunttalk.com. So, Damon, thanks so much. I can't wait till we get to do this around a campfire someday. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Thanks for listening, folks.